0: welcome back to the clinical athlete podcast if you're not familiar with clinical athlete we're a network of healthcare providers students and coaches who specialize in the management of athletes you can find your nearest clinical athlete provider at clinicalathlete.com We also have the Clinical Athlete Forum where we discuss and share ideas and resources related to athlete health and performance. To join the forum or for a potential listing on the Clinical Athlete Directory and for all upcoming seminars, webinars, and events, details can be found on the website. We've got weightlifting certifications coming up, journal club meetings, and much more within the Clinical Athlete Forum, so check it out. This podcast can also be found on our website along with YouTube, iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, and iHeartRadio. If the platform that you use allows you to rate the show, we'd appreciate you taking the time to do that so that we can get this info out to as many people as possible. My name is Quinn Hennick. I'm a doctor of physical therapy in Orange County, California at Clinical Athlete Newport. On this show, we are joined by co-host Jared Maynard, who is the clinical athlete, continuing education director and coordinator, and a physiotherapist at Depth Physiotherapy in Waterloo, Ontario, Canada. He is also a strength coach and runs an online powerlifting coaching company and is a competitive powerlifter himself. And we have our other co-host, John Flagg, who is an athletic trainer and the powerlifting, weightlifting, and strongman coach at 301 Strong in White Plains, Maryland, and the owner of Rebuild Stronger, an online coaching platform for strength athletes. He is also a clinical athlete provider and lead instructor of the Clinical Athlete Powerlifting Certification and on this episode, we are very excited to welcome Dr. Rich Willey to discuss the recent paper that he and his team had published, which is the Current Clinical Practice Guidelines for Patellofemoral Pain. Dr. Richard Willie is an assistant professor at the University of Montana's School of Physical Therapy and Rehabilitation Science. His research focuses on the treatment of runners and tactical athletes with patellofemoral pain, Achilles tendon injuries, and bone stress injuries. He is well published in the field of running medicine using both his biomechanical and clinical knowledge to progress our understanding of how to rehabilitate runners. On this show, we dive deep into the topic of patellofemoral pain, so much so that we've broken the show up into two parts. This is part one, and we hope you enjoy it. Dr. Rich Willie, thanks for being on the Clinical Athlete Podcast.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me. I really appreciate you guys Uh, uh invited me to come on and talk about this clinical practice guideline and and patellofemoral pain which is uh, you know it's a real it's a real passion of mine to you know to treat individuals who have this injury so so thanks for the opportunity
0: so you were the you were the first author with a a host of your of your of other authors and you've got your team here with the clinical practice guidelines of patellofemoral pain and the entire subtitle of the paper is Clinical Practice Guidelines linked to the International Classification of Functioning, Disability, and Health from the Academy of Orthopedic Physical Therapy of the American Physical Therapy Association. This is in JOSPT, and it's it's open access. So if people have not read the paper yet, you can download it right now and at least follow along. And I would I would definitely recommend reading through. When you download it and you see 95 pages, don't freak out. It reads much faster than that, and uh, it, it, it's just really, really important, and, and kind of represents where we are with patellofemoral pain. So we're really excited to have you on, Rich. And before we mm-hmm. dig into the paper, can we learn a little bit more about yourself? Can you tell our six listeners what's led you to your <laughs> current uh, your current interests, your current research tracks, and obviously to the pinnacle of your career now sitting before us on the Clinical Athlete
1: Podcast? <laughs> Sure. Uh, Let's see. I've been a PT now for a little more than 20 years, um, which uh, seemed to happen very quickly. But uh, yes, I graduated from physical therapy school at Ohio University in uh, 1999. Uh, I worked as a clinician for for eight years um, and worked in occupational and sports medicine uh, settings. And um, so I did that. But when I was a PT student, I had the opportunity to do some clinical research. And I always... um, kind of had that, that, that itch that I wanted to get back to doing some research. And so I went to the University of Delaware in 2007 and finished my PhD under Irene Davis, uh, who's now, uh, now at Harvard University um, in 2011. And so I've been a faculty member since then. And so I'm, I'm at the University of Montana and the School of Physical Therapy and Rehabilitation Sciences. I've been here, this is my third year. Um, and yeah, I study running injuries and patellofemoral pain. <clears throat> I also study um, Achilles tendon injuries. And I do a little bit of work with with tibial stress fractures as well. You pick all the fun stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, but yeah, but yeah. So, running injuries are the main thing that I study, but uh, I also work with tactical athletes. So I do some work with, um, you know, with the military, uh, wildland firefighters. So we just got a we just got a nice size grant from the Air Force uh, Research Lab uh, to study load carriage related injuries and uh, and that group. And uh, so yeah, so that's mostly what I do. And I also, of course, teach in our physical therapy program and. Um, and that's uh, teaching something that I I have a real passion for as well.
2: Do you see a lot of carryover between those two populations? Sorry, Quinn.
1: So, yeah, um, absolutely. I think that the main, when you look at overuse musculoskeletal injuries and runners and tactical athletes, they're they're pretty similar. Uh, Knee injuries are the primary overuse injury that you see in tactical athletes. Um, They also get a lot of uh, bone stress injuries as well. Um, The one main difference between those two populations is that tactical athletes tend to get a little more spine injuries. Uh, you know, as far as lumbar lumbar strains and so forth, and again, we're talking kind of more musculoskeletal injuries. Uh, they also have a greater risk of you know some traumatic injuries like um, ACL injuries and um, you know more, of course, the blast type injuries. But when you're looking at you know training, um, the the vast majority of injuries that tactical athletes get are musculoskeletal overuse injuries. So yeah, there is there is a tremendous um, overlap there. I think the one thing that 's a little bit different between the two populations is that when you look at the typical recreational runner, they have a lot of autonomy when it comes to determining their training loads so if you 're not feeling up to going for a big run on a, on a given day if you you can always back off a little bit, but when you 're going through basic combat training you you lose some of that autonomy and um, so for that population it 's of critical importance for them to show up for basic combat training with optimal physical preparation so they can get ready for that really large training spike that's invariably going to occur during during basic combat training so but otherwise you know otherwise it's a lot of overlap there for sure
0: maybe the basic principles still apply you're just in different environments
1: the the management maybe becomes a little different yeah the management becomes different um, the load carriage Component is massive. I mean, I think that when you're running around with a heavy backpack and equipment, those things um, can be a large, you know, change in your training loads. Even though your distances, you know, from training don't really
2: change that much. I saw the same. I did a lot of work with the local sheriff's department and fire in, in DC area, Fairfax, um, and the the load carry with a vest and a gun belt and all the other gear that you have to be loaded out with. It's just, there's a slightly different dynamic, but you see so many similarities between a recreational long distance runner and these men and women who have to carry loads and ruck it all over the place. So I just wanted to know if you you've seen the same thing as well. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, for sure.
0: With this paper, the Patel patellofemoral plane clinical practice guidelines. Before we even get into, into the diagnosis, can you talk a little bit about the importance of a clinical practice guideline such as this, some of the limitations of a paper like this, some of the benefits? What are what clinicians should be understanding that they're getting from, from a piece like this?
1: So, yeah, so a clinical practice guideline is uh, typically put out by some sort of Um, I guess some sort of body in this case, the orthopedic section or the academy now as it's called. Um, And um, it's led by a group of folks who have experience publishing or treating a certain injury or condition. And it's basically a systematic review on steroids. So typically a systematic review will focus on a very uh, specific component of a condition or a treatment, uh, this is kind of covering everything. So it covers everything from etiology to clinical course uh, to outcome measures and then of course treatment, which I think most people are primarily interested in. Um, it's, a, it's a different type of systematic review as well because um, not only do we all kind of hash it out, but it goes through several several le- uh, layers of review. So it has a regular set of reviewers as a normal manuscript would, um, but then it also goes out to the public for a public comment. So uh, the goal of the CPG is to engage all you know, stakeholders, including clinicians and um, patients, even as well. Uh, because if we don't get buy-in from stakeholders, it's not going to be adopted by them. So there's a there's a large and uh, kind of lengthy public comment period, and if you're Member of the academy, you had an, an opportunity to, to comment on this. I think now they're seeking comments on the uh, concussion guidelines. So if that's something that's of interest to you, I would recommend kind of chiming in, or at least reading them. Um, and then we take all those comments into consideration and try to come up with a, you know, some sort of you know document that is you know relatively concise. You pointed out that it was 95 pages long, but when you when you look at that document, really the first half dozen pages are you know have the meat of the CPG in it. Um, and then, because we want to you know engage clinicians as well as patients, we also put out a lot of knowledge translation documents, so things like infographics and press releases, and then we do things like podcasts such as this, so we can try to reach as many people as possible. Um, but that's basically the process. Um, this document, uh, from start to finish um, took us about five years to write. Mm. So it's a it's a pretty long process, and um, CPGs are designed to uh, obviously guide clinical practice, but they're also designed to guide uh, physical therapy education and education of other healthcare pro- uh, professionals, and they're also uh, supposed to or are designed to influence policymakers as well. So um, insurance and insurance companies, and um, uh, you know, and, and other healthcare policy organizations, Medicare, for instance, Um, and so, like, for instance, if you're a clinician and you're having your physical therapy called into a question by a third-party payer, you can call on the CPG and say, look, this is is what's recommended in the current clinical practice guideline for the treatment of this condition, Uh, so there's no reason for you to be denying care for this, for whatever we're doing, so... Um, but yeah, so that's those are the main purposes of a CPG, and uh, they have a they have a shelf life, so they're valid for five years, and at after five years they become null and void because of course the literature has has been updated since then. So there's a renewal process, so you'll see revisions out there. This is the first one, but um, before too long we'll start working on the revision, and uh, there's some recent revisions might be that you might see out there, like on JSPT would like be for the for the heel pain uh, plantar heel pain CPG, I think was revised somewhat recently, but I believe that one is up for revision, uh, very soon also. So I say, if it takes you five years to write it and it's null <laughs> yeah. in five years, you're already starting on I uh, know we Revi- should be, but yeah, <laughs> and actually we are, you know, so as you know, I have, uh, some, uh, literature updates, some automatic literature updates that are set. And so as, as soon as a new paper comes out on patella pain, I go ahead and pull those papers aside. And, um, so we can, should be a much easier process, but um, you still have to go through the whole systematic review process of screening document or screening papers, and uh, so that requires the use of a medical or the you know some medical librarian who has experience with systematic reviews. But yeah, the 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 whole revision part should be a lot easier than the original iteration of a CPG.
0: Are there other limitations to a CPG from a from a clinician standpoint
1: that are unique to a CPG? Well, let's see here. Well, I mean, you know, first and foremost, you know, it's a guideline. It's It's not a protocol or, you know, they're not rules of practice. They're supposed to kind of inform the clinician so they can make more informed decisions when they're working with patients. So... That's worth keeping in mind. Um, as far as the literature, I mean, with any sort of systematic review, you're a little bit hamstrung by the literature that's available. So, um, you know, when you, when you look at the different classifications on here, we we of course rate the quality of the paper. And so, if you go to the end of the CPG, you'll see that um, you know whichever uh, appropriate uh, appraisal. Um, tool is was was used for instance for um, like RCTs we use Pedro of course uh, AMSTAR we use that for the systematic reviews, so yeah the you know the quality of the paper that comes into the CPG matters a lot and we try to take that stuff into consideration so um, I hope that you know when people are are looking at these they're not just taking some of these um, recommendations at face value they're reading the what goes into the recommendations so they can see the limitations of the evidence. Um, some some of the stuff, though, we, we we try to be pretty particular about it as far as where there's a need for, for more research. And um, so I think that, of course, you can kind of read between the lines often if, you, if you're seeing that, like, when we're trying to point out some limitations in that paper, I mean, that's us saying that the paper or the evidence going into that uh, recommendation is not as strong as it could or should be. And you state that pretty clearly. You have a, a very...
0: Uh, clear classification system in regards to the levels of evidence—you've got a kind of an A, B, C, D, etc. scale—that's—it's—it's it's right there. You know, before each paragraph or section, that's what mm. I appreciated about the paper. Even before we start to dig into the actual diagnosis that we're talking about, is that there were very there was very little narrative, and it was it was more well in the sense of you're kind of putting your spin in it, where you see even with a right. systematic review. Traditionally, in the discussion section, section it's still kind of the the interpretation uh-huh. of the author group, yeah. whereas this seemed like, and correct me if I'm wrong, it's, this is the evidence, this is what the current evidence, evidence states, here's a concise summary of
1: such, read it, and make yep. your own clinical decision. Is that fair? That's totally fair. There's no discussion section in a CPG, whereas, as you point out, yeah, quite, you know, quite Quite well, that there is typically some sort of discussion section where there's there couldn't be potential for spin in a typical systematic review, but we just don't have that here. So, you know, for instance, I've, I've got it up right over here. If you have like a, a level A uh, recommendation grade, which would be there's strong evidence, um, and that can be strong evidence either supporting the, some sort of clinical practice or not supporting it. Um, as you say we you know as you're saying we have very clear guidelines that we say you should not do this or you should do this and so some examples would be for exercise therapy, which is what we basically are trying to say instead of using the term physical therapy, um, you should use exercise therapy for the treatment of patellofemoral pain uh, and something else where there's very clear evidence suggesting that it's not helpful, for instance dry needling, we say you should not use dry needling for the treatment of People with femoral pain, because there is evidence stating that it's not effective. So we try to be pretty clear about that.
0: I'm actually going to jump into that. It's it's off. Uh, it's out of order. But just because you brought it up, <laughs> the the <laughs> dry right. needling is right next to the acupuncture <laughs> recommendations, mm-hmm. and it seems like dry needling is a no, and acupuncture is a kind of a meh if you want to, and it's if it's within your scope and your state is that an example of what i've mentioned in that this is not our narrative this is this evidence on this particular modality says this and this is what we're telling you the particular evidence on this says this and this is what we're telling you where when i'm when i'm reading this i'm like well i don't i don't know if there's that much of a difference between i'm on the outside between dry needling and acupuncture i don't have any skin in the game for either side so when i think of those two things i think they're very similar so when I read in the paper that one's not recommended and the other one's kind of a maybe is is my interpretation of that correct where you're just presenting us with the evidence and it's yeah mm-hmm.
1: exactly if you um so in and so of course, this um, JOSPT is read in other countries, and acupuncture is treated is used in Australia by you know physiotherapists, and also um, the UK and a few other countries. So um, acupuncture in those countries has been studied for the treatment of patellofemoral pain. Uh, if I remember correctly, I think there's maybe moderate moderate evidence supporting its use. Um, you know, but uh, dry needling, and when you I'm going to be a little bit careful here because um, I know I feel that like this is a little bit of a minefield, um, mm-hmm. but I, I feel like a lot of times you'll, you'll hear uh, practitioners or advocates for the use of dry needling say it's not acupuncture. Um, and so that was one of the reasons why we wanted to delineate them. So, um, you know, in the acupuncture, there seems to be some evidence. And I think that they're not very high quality studies that are supporting it. And I think that that's super important. So I hope that people who do dry needling don't say, well, I'm going to go ahead and use the acupuncture recommendation to support what I'm doing because even that is not very strong evidence. Um, but yeah, that's, we, we actually had a lot of debate about even including the acupuncture part. And if you notice like in our author list, one of our authors is Christian Barton and, uh, he's from Australia. And again, we're trying to get, um, you know as much uh implementation of this guideline as possible so we wanted to get buy-in from other countries and that's a big reason why our panel is you know international and uh we decided to go ahead and keep it in there because of that and i realized i we lost 3 of our 6 listeners by me even
0: saying that i didn't think there was that big of a difference between dry needling and acupuncture uh, a minefield is not probably an understatement there. Yeah, <laughs> uh, um, yeah.
1: And it, I mean, it sure is. It sure is. So. Mm-hmm.
0: I, and I don't think it, it means that, like you said, we don't just take these, we read a paragraph and say, okay, then I'm going to do this because the CPG, you know, it said this without taking into account the levels of evidence. Without still having discussions on mechanisms, like we can still talk about these things. Well, why does the evidence on acupuncture, why is it better? Well, let's maybe look at those actual studies which you cite. So we can, it, it gives us avenues to look mm-hmm. into these things further. It shouldn't, the book shouldn't just stop here, which I don't, I, I certainly don't think uh, that's your guys' hope either, that we continue no. to, to have these discussions and learn. Yeah.
1: No yeah so you know, so I think too, I think the other part of that is like you know when you when you look across these grades of recommendation, you know we have things like strong evidence, moderate evidence, weak evidence, conflicting evidence evidence, theoretical evidence, and then we have expert opinion and and the one thing I do want to point out is that 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 f that expert opinion is not us that's not that's not the author team, and um we don't get to. We don't put any sort of our own commentary in here, um, and and of course that's where the reviewers come in. But the expert opinion is coming from um, expert opinion papers, so level five evidence is where that's coming from. So if there's level five evidence, so there are papers that are suggesting that this is helpful, uh, and there's not evidence stating that it is not helpful. Um, you know, we're somewhat compelled to keep to keep that recommendation for that thing in in the CPG. Well, that's the best so we be got, real, would, right? yeah i would be very yeah I would be very cautious with um, really hanging your hat on those level F recommendations because they're likely to change um, of course within the next five years
2: yeah that was going to be my question about the bFR because it's got the level f and it there you know there's people that uh, are proponents of it, but there's just not a whole lot of evidence out there really for or against um, outside of some some personal opinion so my question was is, it, is a a pure lack of evidence, or hasn't been enough done, or is it just kind of a professional opinion of those individuals and he answered that pretty clearly there.
1: Yeah, so so BFR we can talk about that one in a little bit. That's from a, that's actually from a randomized control trial out of Australia by Lachlan Giles, uh, and uh, it's, there's uh, some really good authors on that. Jill Cook is on that paper uh, as well. If you're familiar with the tendinopathy uh, literature, you'll, her name will, will be very familiar to you. Um, but yeah, what they found is that um, with the use of you know BFR, you know high rep BFR training, and of course that. There's a the high rep exercise component to it too. So it's always important to kind of put those two together because my understanding is that now that a lot of people are doing BFR without exercise even in, in certain uh, certain parts of rehab. So, uh, of course, there's no evidence to support that practice, uh, certainly with patellofemoral pain. But in this case, all they found was that if you got BFR and you had patellofemoral pain versus the group that had standard heavier strength training when it came to patellofemoral pain for the quadriceps and and hip musculature, they found no difference in the outcomes. Um, However, the group that had um, painful resisted knee extension, they showed a larger improvement in quadriceps strength than than others. So it seemed to help them the most, but it only helped them with their quadriceps strength. It didn't help them with their pain or, or function coming out of out of the randomized control trial. So we didn't feel like there was compelling evidence to say that there was moderate evidence supporting or even, you know, anything other than that, other than there's expert opinion that it, it may help. Um, but um, I think we kind of need to leave it there until we have some other trials that say that it either definitively does or does not. That's the case with patellofemoral
0: pain. And it seems like in general, it's it's one of those those diagnoses that, we're, it's a shoulder shrug a lot of these a lot of these times. So let's we we'll dig into the diagnostic criteria a little bit because you outline some things to look for in regards to making mm-hmm. the diagnosis. Can you talk a little bit about that as as a clinician? Somebody walking in, you suspect patellofemoral
1: pain. What are you looking for
0: in order to make that diagnosis?
1: Yeah, I think. I think one of the things that's super important to keep in mind is that uh, the diagnosis of patellofemoral pain is a diagnosis of exclusion, so meaning that that's where you need to start. You need to say, okay, this person is presenting, they're a runner or they've been doing a lot of repetitive jumping, they're a basketball player or a volleyball player or something along those lines. Um, you really need to spend some time excluding other possible diagnoses, so the, you know, the main ones would be some sort of intraarticular injury of the tibial femoral joint. Um, uh, patellar tendinopathy, IT band pain, uh, try to think of some other injuries. Um, osgood slaughters in adolescent athlete, for instance, uh, and then from there, you know, once you've excluded those, and of course, there's always going to be that that oddball case of like an osteosarcoma or something on those lines. Um, so uh, then from there, you can once you've excluded all those, then you can start saying, okay, well, you know, it. it walks like a dog, barks like a dog, you know, wags his tail like a dog. It, it, this appears to be patellofemoral pain. And I would caution people not to come jump right at patellofemoral pain until they exclude those other injuries. I think that's really important. So when you look at um, how, like, what kind of sounds like patellofemoral pain, it's typically, typically going to be seen in someone who has had a uh, rapid increase in training loads. Um, and that's a relative increase rather than we're not talking about, um, you know, someone who's training at, at a pretty high level, because when, when you look at patellofemoral pain, um, particularly in runners, uh, high training loads are actually seen to be somewhat protective of, of patellofemoral pain. So if you've got if you're running at a high level, those folks don't typically get patellofemoral pain; they tend to get other other types of injuries. Um, so, and then as far as how they how it presents, you're typically going to have um, you know pain with prolonged sitting, so the typical moviegoer's knee. Um, you're going to have pain with descending stairs, pain with resisted knee extension, and perhaps pain with 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 deep squatting. So those are those are kind of your your signs and symptoms of someone who has has patellofemoral pain. Um, there's no good special test for patellofemoral pain. So I think um, at least certainly when I was in PT school, uh, you know, we were taught things like the you know the Clark test or the uh, the J sign or something like that. And for those who don't know what the Clark sign is, it's you know, you basically put your thumb just above the patella and then you have that person do a maximal quad set. And, um, you know, for me, I can tell you when I was in, in PT school, I didn't have patellofemoral pain until my classmate did that test, practiced that yeah. test on me. And then I had patellofemoral pain after. So it's not it's not a good test, you know, so... Um, and, and I think that that is you know a good kind of nice segue into talking about imaging. Uh, imaging is not helpful in diagnosing patellofemoral pain either. Um, we you know there's even if you have uh, someone who um, presents with articular cartilage lesions, uh, and one of the things when we look at imaging. Uh, you know, scanners now, like MRI, for instance, the resolution is so so amazing that if you go in for an MRI, they're going to find something. And when I say they, I mean radiologists or your orthopedic surgeon. And so whether or not, so if you have a uh, articular cartilage lesion, um, that does not predict who's going to develop patellofemoral pain. It's not going to develop. It's not going to predict how severe your patellofemoral pain is, and it's also not going to predict how long it's going to take you to get over your patellofemoral pain. So, um, it's not helpful. Um, and the only reason why we would do it to, would be to exclude something like an osteosarcoma.
0: Hey guys, Quinn Henneke here. Consider this a little stretch break or brain break from Rich Willie dropping knowledge bombs on us wanted to make a quick announcement that as we wrap up the 2019 Barbell Certification Schedule, of which we still have a weightlifting course happening in the Northeast that you can check out on the website, we are going to be looking to schedule our 2020 dates for both the Clinical Athlete Weightlifting and Powerlifting Certifications. So if you know of a willing host facility, have them email events at clinicalathlete.com with a subject line of seminar host, and we will send all details. And one more quick announcement. We have recently launched the Clinical Athlete Coaching Program in which myself, Quinn Hennick, John Flagg, and Jared Maynard are the head coaches. So if you're an athlete or know of any athletes in need of coaching to be able to get back to or surpass their previous performance goals, head over to clinicalathlete.com for details. And now... Back to the show. Speaking of predictive power, are there things that we can measure or risk factors that we can assess
1: that do correlate with the subsequent
0: development of patellofemoral pain?
1: Yeah, I, mean, I, think, I think maybe um, this is maybe a good time to do like a little bit of myth busting, I think, when you think about things that the layperson or maybe even uh, a lot of clinicians uh, think are related to uh, patellofemoral pain, uh, or some of them are actually not. So things like you know, body mass doesn't seem to be, um, BMI does not seem to be, um, and uh, body height. So height also doesn't seem to be predictive, um, static cue angle. So, if you're measuring Q angle in the clinic, um, that's probably a good practice to stop doing um, because it's uh, it's not helpful really for anybody. Um, and uh, so those things are not those things are not helpful when we're talking about who's at risk um, for patellofemoral pain. So you just can't look at someone and say, yeah, that person's likely to develop patellofemoral pain. Um, so things that are would be if you're if you're a woman women tend to have about uh, double the risk of developing patellofemoral pain than males do. So, um, And that's something worth pointing out, too, because uh, when you look at the literature on patellofemoral pain, um, this is one of those medical conditions that we actually know a lot more about in women than males, mm-hmm. and which is a little bit of a flip than um, the overwhelming majority of literature. So there's we don't know a ton about males with patellofemoral pain, so we need to be a little bit careful about applying the literature. Um, that's been kind of derived in a female population to males, of course, and I think that's just good evidence-based practice. Um, And let's see what other things. Um, there is. So a lot of times we like to think that quadricep strength is a risk factor for development of patellofemoral pain, uh, and it is, um, but only in certain populations. And back to our conversation earlier, the one that it's most predictive of, uh, the development of patellofemoral pain is in the military. So when you're outside the military, it doesn't seem to predict risk of patellofemoral pain. And uh, I think that has to do with the fact that if you're small, large, weak, strong, you go into the military, everybody's going to carry the same load. And if you're weak, that's going to be a larger increase in your relative training load than, than, than someone uh, who, is, who is stronger. Uh, let's see here. Other, other things, uh, foot posture does not seem to be... Uh, a risk factor for patellofemoral pain. Um, and so that would be like over, over pronation, whatever that might mean. Navicular drop doesn't seem to be very predictive either. So, um, so it, again, it kind of comes back to a very common narrative that we're seeing in orthopedics and sports medicine now that structure doesn't seem to make that much of a difference um, when it comes to who develops this musculoskeletal injury. And so it's probably not worth measuring. And it's certainly not worth sharing that with your patient if you
2: notice it. So you're telling me it's not their VMO in isolation? <laughs> no, <sighs> no, no, it's not. No, it's All not. those quad uh, sets. There's all
1: those quad sets. Yeah. So if you, yeah, have you learned much about the VMO and how important it is? Uh, that's great. But we know that if you do quadriceps strengthening, uh, it strengthens all your quadriceps, not just one ice one part of your quadriceps.
2: Mm-hmm. So, so, so to riff off this a little bit, I want to think about PT students who might be in school or have just recently graduated who have learned all of these biomechanical or these predictive factors or these supposed predictive factors, and then we've just sort of debunked. Most of them are all of them, and so that that student might be sitting there wondering, "What do I do with the person in front of me who I think has felt moral pain? What do I do to kind of rule
1: that in, um, and then what do I do about that? What might you advise them on?" Yeah, I mean, I think I think the ruling in part would be your physical exam. I think that's the, you know, and the, the one I did leave out was peripatellar uh, palpation. So if they've got some sensitivity around the patellofemoral joint. Um, so they should do that. They should, of course, assess quadricep strength and um, posterior lateral hip strength. Um, those aren't going to help you with the diagnosis, but those can help you kind of give you some guidelines on how, what you're going to do from a rehab standpoint. Uh, the main things are going to be, you know pain with with deep squatting, pain with resisted knee extension um, those are going to be your your main the main things that you're going to be looking at in those individuals um, and um, yeah, I know that like for instance when you look when you're talking about like that whole idea of um, the level like that that grade of an F, that expert opinion you know in the cpg we we do have in there some different classification systems um but if if you notice that's all based on on expert opinion um there's really no good evidence for suggesting that um you know that there's a something that you can really hang your hat on as far as diagnosing patellofemoral pain you know for like an Achilles tendon rupture you know the 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 Thompson test for instance the squeeze test for I mean, that's almost as good as doing an ultrasound uh, or an MRI. I mean, the, the sensitivity of the positive likelihood ratio of that is fantastic um, for an Achilles tendon rupture, of course. But for patellofemoral pain, we just, we just don't have that, that, that same... Sort of assessment, um, or there's no good special test for this. Um, so I think basically what you're doing is you're basically taking a history of the patient, you're doing a physical examination, you want to make sure that you're ruling out other things, um, and then you're uh, essentially looking at um, you know some physical impairments, and so you can help uh, design your design your, your overall treatment plan. I do want to I do want to point out one other thing too that I forgot to mention that quadricep strength is. Quadriceps weakness is a risk factor for patellofemoral pain, but um, as much as it's widely thought, hip weakness is not a risk factor for the development of patellofemoral pain. Um, so, if you're doing um, so, for instance, um, we're getting ready to do some some outreach stuff. We're working with runners to try to provide some best practices for strength and conditioning um, programs for runners. Um, you know, we're going to be really cautious not to say that if you do a lot of hip strength and it's going to reduce your, your chances of developing patellofemoral pain because it, it doesn't. So it doesn't seem mm-hmm. to reduce it. Now, having stronger glutes doesn't seem to uh, reduce the incidence or risk of patellofemoral pain. But what's really curious is is that when you do have patellofemoral pain, now things change. And so now we've got this, this very painful joint, and we're going to have some sort of inhibition of the quadriceps, and we're going to get inhibition of the posterolateral hip musculature, and so you're going to get a drop off in, in force production from that musculature. So rather than thinking that hip strength causes patellofemoral pain, um, now we're we're it's a pretty I think there's pretty good evidence for it. I don't quite remember the the level of recommendation for this, but that. Patellofemoral pain instead causes quadricep weakness and causes lateral hip musculature Mm -hmm. weakness, Um, and that probably has to do from a pain inhibition component.
0: That's the piece that I think people get confused about. It's just because it's not a risk factor, or, or at least we haven't determined it to be so, doesn't mean it also doesn't matter once you've got it in front of you. Once it happens certain things become important to address and even Mm -hmm. quad even quad strength you said was a risk factor only for a certain population which to backtrack even on that i thought was interesting because body mass and bmi were not risk factors as standalone qualities but with the military population we're kind of saying that they have added load on top of them which would kind of be like being overweight but maybe the idea is not thinking about risk factors in isolation or if we have those those are great but they're not strong enough in this case, but perhaps risk factors together, taken together, then increase your risk. So maybe maybe body mass could be a risk factor if you are also weak and you also spike your load versus somebody whose BMI is lower who is weak and who spiked their load. Maybe I'll take the lower BMI if I had to choose
1: Yeah, I probably would too, and for a couple different reasons. Um, And again, this is this is not what we know, but what I think, and I think that's important to make that distinction. Is that you know we know that um, as adiposity goes up, that um, muscle muscle quality declines a bit, and so we know that um, you know strength training is one of the best ways to improve muscle quality. Um, So I I think too that you know I wonder. You know, when you, when you look at body mass, and I and I, I don't know, I'm trying to remember that literature well, but I'm trying to think if it's a, I don't know if it's a good predictor of of how well people do with with patellofemoral pain once they have developed it. Um, but um, yeah, I think that's that, that is worth worth considering. Um, but you know, back back to your point earlier, you were talking about it may not predict who who develops it, but it seems to be very important when someone has that condition. And a good example of that would be um, maybe altered hip kinematics. So, we don't, there seems to be like a little bit of evidence that if you have a lot of hip adduction when you're running or squatting, that that, that might set you up for greater risk of developing patellofemoral pain. Um, but I would say that the evidence is not strong enough to say that you need to go out there and change a lot of people's movement patterns if you're you know, trying to reduce their risk of developing an injury preemptively. Um, you efforts, mean, yeah. Preemptively, yeah. But when that patient comes in and sees you and they have patellofemoral pain uh, and they have a lot of hip adduction and if you have them go into more hip adduction, their their pain increases. Um, it's worth it's worth addressing that. You know, I think we need to be, and I think your points are really good. We need to be really, really careful not to confuse risk factors for
2: things that uh, perhaps influence treatment. So I want to build on that concept real quick and go back to the subcategories because the subcategories were the expert opinion, and there's uh, an overload, there's uh, muscle weakness or or muscle uh, performance, performance. there you go. Thank you, Quinn. Um, There's a a gait component, and then there was a mobility one. Uh, We have a tendency to, to try to create dichotomies and put everybody into their little buckets. But really, in regards to this, unless you see something specific that's triggering towards symptomology, like you said, with some knee valgus or something like that, any one of these subcategories, our intervention's not really going to change too terribly much no, in regards to to getting after this particular mm-hmm. these these symptoms and getting somebody moving forward. Uh, am I correct in that? Yeah, and in fact, so we, there's a flow
1: sheet that's in the CPG that has those. I think they are four different classification um, kind of structures uh, or, or subgroups, and if you look, they the it divides them up into those, but then. It comes back together for the mm-hmm. treatment it comes back in. it's not like you have the, the I think there's a hypermobility one, for instance, uh, or a weakness one. It's not like it's got its own treatment path you know, and so I, I think we need to be careful. I think that that classification system again, it's an expert opinion. I would say that for me, clinically it's not where it needs to be to drive my clinical decision making and um, you know I want to be. You know I want to be cautious there a little bit because it is part of the CPG, but I think that when you look at the purpose of the CPG, we are putting some levels of evidence there and it's an expert opinion. And to me, I think that the other things um, have a much better um, level of evidence supporting it. We'd like to thank Rich
0: for being on the show, and don't forget, this is only part one of this two-part interview with Dr. Rich Willey on patellofemoral pain. You can check out the show notes for links to all of Rich's work and the paper that we discussed on this show. And of course, thank you to my homies, Jared Maynard and John Flagg, for steering this ship alongside me, and thank you, the clinical athlete community all six of you, for joining us on this journey of knowledge and improved practice in both the gym and clinic. If you want to dive even deeper into this community, you can check out all that the Clinical Athlete Forum has to offer, which includes all of our Clinical Athlete Academy courses, amazing discussions and networking with professional clinicians and coaches, as well as students, and just our overall hub of knowledge in regards to athlete health and performance. Thanks, everyone, and talk to you soon.